Howdy and welcome to Inner Moonlight. I'm your host, Logan Cure. You'll remember us as the monthly poetry series for the Wild Detectives in Dallas. We are back as a podcast. Every month I bring you an episode with one brilliant writer for reading and conversation. This month I am extra excited to bring you a writer that I would not normally get to connect with if not for the podcast. Katie Dykus is a native of Fort Worth, but she now works in Madrid, Spain. She works for the anthropology journal Mammoth Trumpet and is a Wild Detectives contributor and a dear friend of mine. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Logan, for having me on. It's an honor to be here. I'm so, so delighted that you're here. So I start every episode with the same question. Um, and I recognize it is sort of a strange question given the state of the world. But would you please tell me something good, Katie? So my good thing is related to having a little extra time during the lockdown here and picking up a new hobby, which uh, was embroidery and following patterns that, that came in the kits that I ordered from Amazon. Finished about four um, now, and I've been able to gift them to different people in my life um, here in Madrid who have helped me get through 2020. The reaction I was able to see on people's faces as it wasn't something store-bought. There's a state of imperfection in each one, but it just made it not industrial. And so not something you can find um, in the aisles of a store. So I was happy to be able to do that. Yeah, that is a wonderful thing. I love it. What about you? Yeah, I always have to play my own game. My family and I bought a house. That's my good thing. I'm very, very excited. You know, since we all um, really live in our houses in new ways, I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a really good thing. Absolutely. I'm happy for you. That is actually very on topic for so much of what yeah. we have to talk about today. <laughs> yes, yes. Topic of home. Would you mind starting with reading your meditation on home piece? I would like to really just get like right into the writing. I'm so thrilled to hear it. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm excited to get into it. This is a, a nonfiction piece that I, I wrote during our two month strict lockdown here in Madrid. The illustrator, Carson Ellis, wrote and illustrated a picture book called Home. During the two month lockdown here in Madrid, this book arrived for me from an anonymous sender. What follows are some musings uh, penned during the confinement, which the book inspired. This is a time when all I can do is be home. That's all any of us can do right now. But it's not even my home that I'm in. It's my boyfriend's home. And I'm not even in my home country. So even though I'm spending all of these weeks at home, is it really home I'm in? Carson Ellis said, I love to draw worlds. And that's what a home is, an environment. Once you begin looking at an environment, you start to wonder who inhabits it and why they made that home the way they made it. Once you start looking for homes, you find them everywhere. They come in all shapes and sizes in the form of houses, apartments, birds' nests, and snails' shells. When did home become embedded in human consciousness? Is our sense of home instinctive? Are we denning animals or nest builders? Or are we at root nomadic? I write about anthropology, and I've learned that for much of the earliest history of our species, home may have been nothing more than a small fire and the light it cast on a few familiar faces, surrounded perhaps by the ancient city mounds of termites. But whatever else home is, and however it entered our consciousness, it's a way of organizing space in our minds. Home is home, and everything else is not home. That's the way the world is constructed. Not that you can't feel 
at home in other places. But there's a big psychological difference between feeling at home and being home. Feeling at home in Bangalore, India, or Glasgow, if you're not native, is simply a way of saying that the not-homeness of those places has diminished since you first arrived. Some people, as they move through their lives, rediscover home again and again. Some people never find another after once leaving home. And of course, some people never leave the one home they've always known. I've had many homes. In Poetics of Space, Gaston Bachelard created a philosophy of at-homeness, rich in emotion and memory. A house that has been experienced is not an inert box, he wrote. The house is a shelter without which the human would be a dispersed figure. The house collects and contains past, present, and future. It integrates thoughts and memories and desires. All this it does by allowing the human to daydream. Each one of its nooks and crannies is a resting place for daydreaming. He admits that every house is first a geometrical object of planes and right angles, but asks his reader to ponder how such lines welcome human complexity, idiosyncrasy, how the house adapts to its inhabitants. The influence is mutual. The house makes an impression on the human, and the human makes an impression on the house. The house is the human's first universe. How the human experiences and makes sense of this first universe determines their relationship with larger space later, with the whole cosmos. Let's go back to Carson Ellis's home. What emerges in this picture book is a playful and tender reminder that however different our walks of life, what contrast there is between the Slovakian duchess's mansion and the Kenyan blacksmith shack, between the babushka's kitchen and the artist's studio, we are all united by, by our deep desire for a place to call home. We begin belonging to a world by first rooting ourselves into it, by staking out a little corner of it to call our very own. It need not have walls or a roof. It can be a tour bus or even a shoe, as Ellis's illustrated taxonomy illuminates. But only from that place of safety can we reach out to connect, to understand one another, and to begin belonging. Ellis guides the reader through this common thread of belonging by placing little markers of communion and continuity. The same house plant graces multiple homes. A pigeon visits the young girl in Brooklyn and then perches on the Russian babushka's window and speaks to the reader on the last page, asking, where is your home? The icon that hangs on the wall of the babushka's kitchen is seen, several pages later, on the wall of the artist's studio. The artist is Ellis herself. As an expat living in a foreign country, I'm used to venturing off into unknown lands, exploring far-flung places, and perhaps returning home a different person or a different version of myself. That is exactly what my home away from home affords. Endless opportunities to leave home and come back again. A privilege I don't take for granted, especially now. So this idea of not going away, being forced to stay at home, becomes an exercise in treating the home as a universe in its own right, full of surprises. Hidden in tiny corners of dusty bookshelves are old receipts and foreign coins and bobby pins. Everyday practices are suddenly endowed with new meaning. The common habit of making the bed in the morning and pulling up the blinds to let the sun's warmth in become precious rituals as sacred as the Japanese tea ceremony. There's finally a time to pay attention to the details, no matter how mundane, of domestic life. It's a forced opportunity, but still an opportunity.
As a writer, home is an important place, usually the place where creation happens, the building of ideas one on top of the other until something is achieved. Nabokov was born into one of the most aristocratic families in Russia, splitting his childhood between an estate in Siverskaya and a large St. Petersburg townhouse, a place he would describe as the only house in the world. Mark Twain, writing of his Connecticut abode, where he penned both Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, said, To us, our house had a heart and a soul and eyes to see us with. It was of us, and we were in its confidence. The way he describes his home as having eyes, a heart, and soul is the way one might think of a person. And that is, in fact, what a house with personality can be, a character, drenched in its own eccentricities with secrets tucked away under rugs and in closets, draped in its own history, having a past, a present, a future. A house can be nostalgic for something, just like a person can be. It can wish for days that filled it with laughter and the warmth of a crackling fire, for days when its people danced inside of it to the tune of Billie Holiday, to the times when friends gathered for whiskey and a book exchange. Home contains our joys, cries, passions, fights, and reconciliations, an extension of who we are, a hope of a certain kind of future. A nice nin said that one writes because one has to create a world in which one can live. I cannot live in any of the worlds offered to me, she wrote. The world of my parents, the world of war, the world of politics. I had to create a world of my own, like a climate, a country, an atmosphere in which I could breathe, reign, and recreate myself when destroyed by living. So writing then is a type of home, offering up a world or worlds in which the writer can inhabit. It is precious space. That's beautiful. Thank you. You know, for a long time, I've kind of, I think I've searched for this place of belonging. I think maybe a lot of creative people do that. And then they find a home in their art and that act of creation gives them space to dream and being confined to home sort of forced me to think about what home is and what it isn't in a way I never have. Yeah, I had never thought about how feeling at home, what you said, means that that the feeling of not being at home has diminished since you arrived. Yeah. I mean, and that, and I think that is a real relief to a person who likes to explore because it kind of means that no matter where you go in the world, you, you could potentially make it another home for yourself, you know? And I think for you as a writer, you have even greater potential of doing that because wherever you go, wherever you are, you can write. And that is, that is a type of home that is in fact home as well. This is such an interesting piece of writing. It is both like very personal nonfiction, but you have this very like academic approach to it that I really admire the way you've woven in all of these other writers and thinkers. Hmm. Sometimes I worry that my writing can bend more towards the academic side and that perhaps that renders it somewhat inaccessible. But I think that, I think nonfiction for me has always been a bit 
more attainable because it's anchored in facts. And I think Zadie Smith said that as well. I think she's a wonderful essayist. I love how she thinks, how she thinks crisply and exactly, not in abstractions, and how she kind of zigzags in a way where we can see the inside of a quick mind. I suppose because of my academic background, I studied literature. I think I enjoy maybe a slightly more academic side of writing. I think in this piece in particular, the way that you're like talking to other writers is really fascinating because because you're right, that's a thing that you can take with you no matter where you are too. Like that act yeah. of, of reading and engaging with the worlds and homes that other people are making. And I love that in this piece, that is that is lots of other genres. You have a children's book, you have you have all these different voices that are there. And I think we're all doing that as writers, like whether or not yes. we're like explicitly acknowledging that in, in the piece that we're writing, right? Like we're all yeah. responding to the worlds that we have created inside ourselves from, from being readers, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that every book or every piece of writing is like an invitation to dialogue with that. I think we, we were taught or trained in university to sort of dialogue with the authors we read and that ultimately they are our best writing teachers. So for listeners, Katie and I go way back, all the way back to college. (laughs) Oh, I love this story. We met before we were in class together because you interviewed me for the newspaper Mm -hmm. because I had self-published my book of poems. You interviewed me for that. And I remember the, the, photo of me was like absurdly large. I remember <laughs> this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I look so pretentious. It's fine. I was a 19 year old poet. It's, it's whatever. Um, but yeah, I was like, I was so excited to be, to be interviewed and the, the article you wrote was so lovely. And then we were in class together. So we took Angie Cruz's class together. And you're right, we were explicitly taught to respond to things around us by Angie Cruz. Yes, we were. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a writing seminar, I think, called Write is Fight, right? Yeah. I'm really grateful for um, the academic background that I received in really two different places. We went to Texas A&M together, and then I I went off and I did a master's course in Scotland. Very different. You'd write in this piece about um, creating at home. What is your writing space like at home? Ooh, nice question. Well, I spent uh, the the time in which I wrote this little thing. I was actually not in my apartment. I spent those two months with my boyfriend in lockdown. When I was writing this piece, my writing space over there was a little room of my own. I had a desk at the window and I could look out and peer into a world larger than than the apartment I was confined to. And it was just a simple little desk, the window. And here at my house, it isn't much different. I have a little desk at the window also here and it catches the best light. I'm, I'm in an attico apartment, which is attico, it's attic in Spanish. It's just an apartment at the very tip top of a apartment building. And so I can look out from my view and, and catch the sunset. Um, and that's my favorite time to write. 
the sunset. So that's a, do you think that's a Texan thing? Because- I do. I knew you were going there. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I do think it is. And it's funny. It's eerie how similar the climate is um, between Texas and um, between North Texas and Madrid, um, because our summers are scorching hot in both places. Winters can be cold in both places, maybe colder here, but we both places afford these remarkable sunsets that turn um, peach and lilac and green at times, weird colors. You really get that in both places. I think I need to see the sky. And that's part of what helps me feel more at home here is I think about the Texas sky when I look out from my window. It's beautiful. Yeah. You do write more academic nonfiction. And you sent me an excerpt of a book chapter. Yes. And I'm excited to hear more about this. And I'm, I'm, I read it and I'm fascinated. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to hear more about um, like how you arrived at writing this. Yeah. As well. I, I would love to share the, the background to this piece. Um, this is my very first book publication. I'm not used to being published in academic books. And the way this came about, it was the summer of 2018. I had uh, sent an abstract to this conference on, uh, basically the theme was crossing borders and gender and culture. And it was an international conference on gender studies and very interdisciplinary. The place where the conference took place was Warsaw, Poland. And I presented this paper. And at the end of the conference, we were told that we could submit our papers for the possibility of it getting published in a collection. A few got selected. Topics of equality and violence, work and politics. I actually started thinking about the ideas years ago um, when I took a course on women travel writers. And it got me thinking about how difficult that must have been for for women in the the 18th and 19th centuries to really venture far from home and to, and then to to comment on foreign cultures and to and to select ideas and models from those cultures to bring home but i i never had heard of this woman called Ethel Brilliana Alec Tweedy and the name itself is what captured my attention i had to explore further okay that's that's brilliant I, can i can i hear the excerpt sure okay As the British Empire expanded in the late 19th century, the increasing cultural importance of athleticism promoted the cause of the sportsman, and to a lesser degree, the sportswoman. By the 1890s, British society no longer considered the notion of a sporty lady as paradoxical. In her writings on Scandinavia, Tweedy presents herself as such, an example of combined female respectability and audacious athleticism. Her ethnographic study of the North allows her to comment on her home culture through an athletic exploration of Scandinavian culture. She models herself after active Scandinavian women and asks her female readers to follow her lead. Although contact zones normally involve asymmetrical relations of domination, Tweedy demonstrates that power relations are constantly in flux. Her work, Through Finland and Karts, presents an orientalizing view of the North in that Tweedy primitivizes Scandinavia by highlighting the cold, barren climate and the area's geographical and cultural distance from metropolitan centers like London, 
But at the same time, she praises the degree of liberty the Native women achieve there on a daily basis. Fissures in Tweedy's simple binary surface most, obviously in her chapter entitled Women and Education, where she depicts an exemplary North associated with modernity in the form of its emancipated women, who show women in civilized nations the way forward. Tweedy admires the, quote, wonderful way in which women have pushed themselves to the front and ceased to look upon matrimony as the only profession open to the sex, end quote, assuming occupations in teaching, home construction, medicine, and agriculture. Quote, as no country is more democratic than Finland, where there is no court and little aristocracy, she observes, there is no law to prevent women working at anything they choose, end quote. Tweedy then references the, quote, struggle going on now around us, end quote, which Wollstonecraft also mentions in her letters, and finds it, quote, remarkable that so remote a country, one so little known and so unappreciated, should have thus suddenly burst forth and hold the most advanced ideas for both men and women. That endless sex question is never discussed. There is no sex question in Finland. Men and women are practically equals, and on that basis, society is formed. End quote. Tweedy's later work, Women and Soldiers, 1918, similarly foregrounds the importance of women performing the tasks of men during the Great War. It seems her observations of turn of the century Finnish women work as an informal rehearsal for the more radical views she will adopt during war years, in which she argues that women should be allowed to fight alongside men in the trenches of the Western Front despite the fact that both her sons die fighting in this very war. Gillian Rose argues that the, quote, seemingly banal and trivial events of the everyday are bound into the power structures which limit and confine women, end quote. Women traveling in the 19th century examined the complexities of networks and patterns of everyday life, where the goal was not to map every detail as a demonstration of masculine knowledge, but to reinsert physical dimensions into the discourse and trace patterns from the ordinary. Tweedy does just that and more. Her excavations of Scandinavian culture connect to the everyday life of winter sports, which function as a necessity in a harsh northern climate, but also as an entry point for Tweedy's social analyses. This point annexes her approach to Wollstonecraft's whose solitary yet sportive excursions provide her occasion for similar analyses. What makes Tweedy's Nordic travel narratives distinctive, though, is their conflation of discourses of northernness, modernity, and female emancipation. She gives the peripheral Scandinavian nations a symbolic centrality in the European imagination as models of future progress, particularly in the advancement of women. That is fascinating. Like I just had so much fun <laughs> researching this. I mean, it just led me to Amelia Bloomer, the the woman who tried to get rid of corsets and advocated for the Bloomer. Okay. You know, and women cyclists and things like that, and how she kind of advocated for a revolution of women's clothing to allow them to participate in more active endeavors, you know, but just, it was so much fun just learning about these women. I mean, no one ever talks about Ethel Brilliana Alec Tweedy, you know, 
but they should. <laughs> Travel writing is such an interesting genre and not yeah. always like necessarily like serious or radical. Right. But this exactly. is like you, you drawing it the is. threads of like, okay, we're talking about winter sports, but we're also talking about emancipation. Yeah. So we're going yeah. from like, you know, skiing in Norway and, um, you know, the Finnish sauna and traveling through carts in Iceland, going on horseback, riding man style. You know, you're going from all these funny anecdotes and you're looking at these women basically not taking themselves seriously, you know, participating in these sporty things. And then you're going into something really serious, like these women who worked for the advancement of women in their own culture by like taking ownership of the places of which they write. You know, it's really an amazing thing. Yeah. And I can see how the sort of maps onto the way that you operate as a writer, like you are so influenced by your own, like, both like physical travel and exploration and your academic exploration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. That's what connects me to these women, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I really appreciated that about this particular excerpt is like being shown something that's, that's important that I wasn't already aware of. So thank you for that. Oh, I'm glad that it's like kind of opened up something new. For you that's that's I think that 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 is what is so fun about making these discoveries is like ultimately sharing them and that's why I like participating in conferences when I can I'm I don't do scholarship on a regular basis but when I'm able to it's really fun to to hear what others have discovered and they listen to what you know you've discovered it's a nice it's a nice place to share and it's cool that something came out of that conference and became this chapter I'm really grateful and I've I've been able to do a couple more conferences since, and it's just really, really fun. I, I like hearing people's ideas. I like being challenged. Well, it's important to gather. I hope that we can all get back to gathering in the old ways. Inner Moonlight has been such a joy in that way. Mm, yes. Um, to to bring people into the beautiful space that is yeah. the Wild Detectives, and I. It is important for me to acknowledge that I have you to thank for that, Katie. Again, for our listeners, Katie is the reason that Inner Moonlight exists. Mm -hmm. um, she reached out to me. So you are our Wild Detectives contributor, great friend of the Wild Detectives. And when they wanted to start a poetry series, how, did, did Andres just ask you? How did that happen? Right. So Andres is a good friend of mine. He was visiting Madrid. He He's from Logroño, uh, La Rioja, which is a town in the north. But he was here for a few days visiting friends. And we caught up over coffee. And he was telling me how he was really happy with the campaigns that the Wild Detectives had going on, but that there was this, they were kind of lacking in the, in the area of poetry. And I instantly thought of you, Logan. Instantly. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that that collaboration would be successful. And it has turned out to be even even greater than here I could have imagined. And it's we have you to thank for that. It's a joy because of the the joy you infuse in these events and the the energy you bring to your interviews and just to everyone who is related to the project. And uh, so, yeah, he and I just started talking. I, I told him about you. And then I put you guys in touch and then the rest is history. So 
Yeah. And it's been, it's been brilliant. I, and for those of you that have been following along the whole time, you know, we try to put out interviews and reviews for our features and uh, you have, Katie, you've written some beautiful reviews. I loved your interview with Alexander Corinth. Like I really, the, the writing that you have produced to support these other writers has been so important. Oh, I've, it's been such a thrill. I mean, and such an honor. Like I can't, sometimes I can't believe this is what I get to do that. You know, you, uh, when I get an email from you, I just light up. Like I know it's going to be something really good. And so just getting to, um, getting to know these people on a level that is so intimate yet. So they give so freely of themselves, like, like the generosity of spirit that I have seen in these poets and their writing just is unbelievable. <sighs> Thank you. It's a hell of a story. Yes, it has been really like an amazing friendship, all of these connections. And I, I really love putting people together who I know are going to make something incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so, I'm just so delighted that we have gotten to do this. And I'm also yeah. delighted that you're willing to share some of your poetry. I guess I've tried to dabble in it here and there. And I think of these three little poems as sort of sketches um, that kind of each of them center around a moment um, that I've had here in Spain. Well, I would love to hear them when you read them to me. This one's called Dreaming in Spanish. In the art section of Retiro Park's bookstalls, Picasso hides in the shadows of Goya. Along the streets of Lava Pies, graffiti strikes a blow against the crimes of Franco. Atop the boulders of La Pedrita, hikers spread out the city like a tent. In the sea-swept climbs of Asturias, we adorn our plates with marisco. The next poem, uh, equally as short, it's called Abuela. Maybe give me your abuela's recipe, the one from Galicia, with the pulpo and the sprinkled on paprika. How about you and the Buena Vista Social Club come over and we make it together? We'll all fit in my kitchen, I swear. It's bigger than my patience. I swear on the life of this brand new bottle of olive oil. And lastly, language. I wore your language like a button-up vest, enclosing my heart, not head. And when we raced to undress, one button popped and ricocheted off that mirror. It cracked and split me in two. And you were shining in all your teeth like someone in love with love. And there were two of me neither of whom you knew. Those are so brilliant. I love that image of one button popped and ricocheted off that mirror, cracked and split me, line break in two. That is a brilliant line break, Katie. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I felt that. Um, never really <laughs> experienced a moment of having a button pop off and ricocheting off a mirror, but I imagined, you know, in my mind, it's that image of how relationships 
can break, fracture, and then when they're gone, it's like you see yourself in pieces. And and I guess I was trying to get at that. But yeah, and then language, it's sort of been inspired by, I guess, living in an international context where language barriers are a part of dating here, I suppose. And yeah, and you sort of try on that other language and you try to make it fit and you try to be understood in that language and you try to convey your meaning and how oftentimes that just isn't isn't clear you can't um, exactly be understood or seen or known in the way you want to and so that frustration that's real Yeah. yeah all of these poems have sort of a an ambivalence, a, a splitness, or a hesitation, like the opening of Abuela, maybe give me your Abuela's recipe. Mm. The, sort of, the, the, the sort of surreal turns it takes from there. Um, the beautiful, I swear mm. it's bigger than my patience. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the first poem, Dreaming in Spanish, it was sort of like my, in a way, like little ode to the city of Madrid after I first visited here. I was here for three months uh, back in 2014, just a short stay before I returned the the next year more permanently. But these were like little things that um, really impressed me about the city. The the sea-swept Asturias, that's the north of Spain, which is just absolutely impressive in its natural ruggedness and wildness and the hiking that you can do right outside the city limits. The, The way that graffiti in the city still remarks on the dictatorship of Franco, how society is still reeling from that decades later. Um, and just the, the art that makes the city so alive, trying to like kind of pinpoint the gems of this place and mapping it out for myself. And that structure I really kind of borrowed uh, from the Book of Embraces. I think there is a poem in that that inspired this kind of structure i guess yes the lines with the colons and uh, yeah i can yeah. see the structure here. yeah poetry is i see why it why it appeals to you and why you're good at it because it's like a container you can put things inside oh i like oh that's a nice way to think of it <laughs> yeah yeah it's um i think it i think it's a place to be a little more free in expression. And I, I think like with, with academic writing or nonfiction, I'm really, like I said, anchored by the facts, by a particular structure, the way things should be. But with, with poetry, what's really frightening to me is how few rules there are mm-hmm. um, and how free expression can be. And that's um, overwhelming for me. They're so beautiful though. So, so sensory and alive. Like I can, I can, can feel the speakers sort of like wonder at things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, thanks. I, I don't even know where they come from exactly. I do like sort of using little words in Spanish here and there that, I mean, perhaps you don't know the word marisco or pulpo. Pulpo is octopus, marisco is seafood. Mm-hmm. You know, just like words here and there that maybe 
a person who would be reading this wouldn't know the meaning to. But I, I, I even like doing that to the reader because it makes them guess at it. I mean, there is context, but then there isn't. Well, yeah. And everybody carries a computer in their pocket. Like if they want to That's translate the word, they absolutely <laughs> <Yes>. can. <laughs> so I'm just going to assume that readers are very intelligent people and they can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I think, I think the, especially hearing you read it, the sound quality of those words is, is beautiful and reinforces the sort of like splitness we were talking about. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about exploring. We talked a lot about home, not exploring. And I think that is a, a splitness I will always feel, like this kind of conflict that I feel inside, this Americanness, but then this this new homeness, but then also this love of exploration, but also the, the homebody that I am. There's a lot of splitness. Um, there's a lot of contradiction within me that I'm realizing, especially lately. Well, I'm so, so glad that you shared all of this work with me today. I feel like I know more. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. Me too. Just the process of, of writing these things have made me more considerate of certain ideas and, and people and walks of life and places. And I guess that, I guess that's the, that's the point. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. This has been such a delight talking to you. I am so grateful for all of the ways that you have made my life and my writing life better. Thank you, Katie. Oh, I mean, amen to that. I am just so glad that we've connected again like this. Thank you for your really insightful questions. Thank you for asking me to think about things um, in a different way and for just dialoguing with me. And just, it's been so nice to just talk with a friend whose work I truly deeply admire. So. Uh, Likewise, you're going to make me blush. (laughs) Ah, Well, (laughs) good. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Wild Detectives. This has been Inner Moonlight. I'm Logan Cure, and I will see you again next month.